believe in yourself, <laughs> you know, I think that's a big one and actually kick out the imposter syndrome, you know, dreadful. I, I still deal with that all the time, but I've become a lot better at ignoring it now or hearing it and going, oh yeah, I've heard all this before, move on. But I think you can give yourself permission to be yourself, just how enjoyable that is. Um, whatever the environment you're in and whatever your role is, I don't think it means that you need to have a certain level of power or influence to be yourself. I would hope that whatever you're doing, you can find that authenticity. So for me, it's just about being able to give yourself permission to live the life you'd always hoped you were going to live and make that happen, not just hope that it'll happen tomorrow or that someone else will create that for you. That is author, activist and Australian corporate heavy hitter, Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. And this is episode 307 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to episode 307 of Better Than Yesterday. Uh, this My guest today is Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram, Kirsten Ferguson, K-I-R-S-T-I-N-F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N. Spell that three times fast. If you're new to the show, g'day, welcome, thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this podcast is simply a conversation designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. I guarantee it, in the next hour and a bit or so, you'll hear something that'll make you go, ah, I never considered that before. And as a result, today will feel better than yesterday. That's it. That's all I'm here to do. If you don't know me, I'm a, a TV guy, um, a radio guy, a book writing guy, a stepdadding guy, and currently a guy that's dealing with a cold coming on. But because I'm also a guy who's got an eight-week-old baby and a wife who's up all night feeding him, I'm not saying anything at all about how uncomfortable I am. Nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Uh, thank you very much to everybody that rated and reviewed the show in iTunes. It uh, really helps us here at the show. Um, the, the two biggest things you can do for us here, if you like the show, if the show brings you value, tell someone about the show. That really helps us out. And if you really want to help out, just in the podcast app on iTunes, I know you listen on Google, I know you listen on Spotify, but in the podcast app on iTunes, if you were to be so kind as to rate and review the show, it would really help uh, Grace Honor Integrity, uh, which is a fantastic last name. Brilliant every time, five stars. Never miss, never miss this podcast. Even if I look at the title and think, oh, I don't think this will interest me, I always tune in trusting that if Osha thinks it's worthy of airtime, there will be something valuable in it. Thank you very, very much. That makes me feel very happy. This is from A Perth 2016. Lots of drivel. Came to listen to the Jackie O podcast as a first-time listener. So, full stop, much, full stop, drivel, full stop, get to the interview. Almost 10 minutes in, no Jackie O. Sorry, A Perth. Um, that's the show. You are always welcome to fast-forward through anything you don't like. And from Scar 89 wrote, uh, love this podcast, feel like I learn something new each time I listen, definitely a little bit better than yesterday. Thank you so much. That really means an awful lot. Also, really, really loving to see where you're listening to the show 
always love to see that. Just uh, shoot a photo of what you're looking at right now and email it to me. Send us your email at gmail.com. Linda sent an email. I'm listening to your latest podcast at the Canberra Plasma Donor Centre, watching the fish in the tank and the lovely nurses take such great care of everyone. Good on you for donating plasma, Linda. Uh, One came in from Rochelle, listening to the catch-up on the 18th from my apartment in Abu Dhabi, watching the laundry dry and watching the sunset begin. I love the sunset because it reminds me no matter what, the sun will rise tomorrow and there's an extraordinary pick out the window off her home of Abu Dhabi being constantly in a state of construction. Every photo I've seen of that place in the last 20 years, something's always being built. Luke sent a cracker. G'day, Luke from Central West New South Wales near Wellington. Haven't sent you a podsy in a while, pushing sheep down to be sure and listening to your check-in. It's a great picture of literally uh, sheep heading down a, a you know, dirt track on the way to be shown. So glad to hear you're doing exposure therapy. It's tough. I've had OCD in the past and have been through exposure therapy, which is the only permanent thing which removed my obsessive thoughts. Uh, this is when uh, sometimes my obsessive, obsessive thoughts uh, change topics. This is when I realized it wasn't the actual topic of the fear. It was the obsessive cycle I needed to address. I battle obsessive thoughts and fears for years. They still work in the background, but they are one one thousandth of the strength they were. You're on the right track. The only way out is through. i uh, got to tell you, Luke, great to hear that. Because, yeah, I've been talking a bit about the exposure therapy lately, and, man, it sucks. But it's good to hear someone who's been on the other side. Uh, but I really relate to that, man. Thank you so much for reaching out. And Linda sent a lovely note from Orange with, I believe, some sort of cherry blossom or something. That looks delicious. Thank you so much for listening. Um, really appreciate it. Send us your email at gmail.com is, is where you can find me. A big thanks as, much as well to everybody that reached out about the chat around Mildura and Robinvale and the plight of Australian fruit and vegetable grow- growers. Uh, from what I saw with my own eyes, you'd think that food security would be front page news, Right. You'd think that if the ability to have fresh fruit and vegetables in the supermarket without fail, you'd think it would be protected at all costs. You'd think that's something that we would think is important in our community. You'd think that all the increasing effects and perfectly manageable and even avoidable, some of them, effects of climate change would be front page news and drive election conversation, but they're not. I hope we don't have to wait until things are critical before they are, but yeah, it's uh, well and truly going down. And um, our ability to eat (laughs) is right in the firing line. I think for me, the most frustrating thing about all of this is that the solutions that we need are here. We're not waiting for anything to be invented. We're not hoping for some miracle piece of technology to save us. We know what we have to do. We know the ways to adjust how we grow our food, manage our water, generate our electricity and get ourselves from place to place. We know exactly what we need to do. Everything's there. All those things are here. They're just waiting to be deployed, yet we're not doing it. Do we really have to wait until we can't get apples year-round? Do we really have to wait until every coastal Australian city relies on desalination for water? Do we really have to wait until there's no more coffee because the planet has warmed up too much for it to be able to grow anywhere? Because that would suck. I like coffee. And I've read the things that say coffee's in trouble. No, let's not do that, Okay. Let's not do that. Like, yeah, sure, ecosystems collapsing, you know, green tree frogs dying, extinct, echidnas. Coffee, all right? Come on. How many things do we have to say are in trouble that you can care about before you do some shit, all right? Bloody hell. Look, whatever happens, it is going to be an interesting couple of years ahead of us, my friends, and I am not going to lie. I am glad that we're all in this together because uh, it does buoy me with hope to know that you're here too. 
Speaking of being in things together, I am in the world of brand new fatherhood to a baby together with a friend of mine, Charlie Clawson. You may know him from Tofop, the incredibly successful podcast he does with Will Anderson that's been running for over 10 years. Uh, Charlie and I found out we were going to become dads to babies about two weeks apart. Uh, Our babies were born and we decided to combine our podcasting powers and create a show called Dad Pod, which premieres on Wednesday. I believe the trailer's out now. Just find Dad Pod. Look for Osher and Charlie's Dad Pod, and you'll find it pretty easily. And, yeah, first steps out on Wednesday. Um, there's a trailer out now. And, um, yeah, yeah, I, I hope you enjoy it. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Kirsten Ferguson is an author, activist, and Australian corporate heavy hitter. Uh, she lives in Brisbane, Australia. She is the deputy chair of the ABC and is an adjunct professor at the QUT School of Business and has previously been CEO of a global health and safety organisation, formerly an administration officer in the Royal Australian Air Force. She graduated ducks of her Air Force graduating class at the Australian Defence Force Academy and on graduation was posted to an F-111 squadron at RAF Base Amberley. Uh, Kirsten also quite famously started the Twitter hashtag Celebrating Women. She profiled 757 extraordinary women. And Kirsten, by doing so, began to reframe the conversation around women, around powerful women, around women's achievements on that platform at a very, very much needed time. She's since co-written a book called Womankind, which explores that adventure in greater detail. I thoroughly recommend you to read it. Now, Kirsten and I recorded this at the Batuta Advocate Studios, and I learned a very valuable lesson that day, which I already knew, but I got a solid reminder. If you're ever meeting someone who's ex-military, if you're not 10 minutes early, you are five minutes late. <laughs> I need to up my game. She was just sitting there going, good morning. I was like, shit. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> of course you're here, really. <laughs> Ex-officer. If you like what you hear, please engage and let Kristen know. Kristen's on Twitter and Instagram, K-I-R-S-T-I-N-F-E-R-E-G-U-S-O-N. Kirsten Ferguson. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. How's Wolfie going? Wolfie is good. I was, uh, and you just started. Well, he's, he's he's being quite selfish at the moment and not producing any melatonin. Right. So that's kind of what's happening at the moment. 
Can you get on that mic a little bit more? Yeah. Do you need me a bit closer? Let me just make sure you're you're there. Yeah, can you, you just get right me up now? Like, like you're, eating, right like up you're eating an ice cream. Yeah. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, I've got you. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're great. Are we on? Yeah, we're on. Is this the start? Or yeah, yeah. yeah, this is always how it is. <laughs> okay. Can we just get in and start talking? Righto. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really scary. You know, I, I was just talking to my psychiatrist about it yesterday. I went fucking crazy a couple of years ago and uh, I started having paranoid delusions and, and things like this and I was, you know, imagining the, the full cataclysmic effects of climate change were happening today, mm. you know, and I was the only person that knew and I was seeing things and stuff like that. It's- Those things are all still going to happen. There's no if, it's when. It's really tough to bear to the hold climate change or yeah, feeling yeah. that? No, that, that, those things, yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's been really tough these last couple of days, you know, like I've been doing a lot of exposure therapy with my therapist. I have a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And, you know, just kind of understanding that the weather changes we're experiencing now are a result from emissions 20 years ago and that emissions have been climbing since then. So even if we stopped CO2 today, the mm. weather would still get worse. For the next so how years. do you bring yourself back then to focus on the here and now and what you can control? Well, this is the thing. How? What do you do? What do you talk to? How do you talk to your kids about it? It is really difficult. Well, they educate me as much as yeah. uh, me talking to them about it. So my kids are much older than Wolfie. I've got a 19 and 17 year old. Right. Well, my eldest is 15 and a half. Yeah. yeah. So they've got a different perspective. But I mean, I guess for you though, given what you've experienced, it's thinking about what's important right now and right now Wolfie fortunately isn't aware of what's coming Yeah, and all he cares about is that you're there holding him, feeding him, looking after him. So you're actually doing everything you can be doing right now. Otherwise it's going to be perpetually out of control. And for people listening now, I could see Osh's view of scepticism as he looks at me. Well, it's it's more than just bearing the feeling of intangibility. These are big questions. You know, just mm. how can I bear that? I'm sure, you know, in the, the military training that you had as the cornerstone of your career, there was like, okay, here's the tangibles, here's the intangibles. Um, <laughs> we try to keep the balance on this side. We try to control outcomes as much as we can and then we prepare for other stuff. And then there's so many intangibles. It's like, like yeah. how, how can I just be okay with... It was actually less so the military than leading a group of psychologists that actually taught me how to deal with that, which is what you can control. You can only control what I think, feel, say and do. I can't control a lot of stuff. And if I try and focus on that too much, what I can't control, it's exhausting and depressing and um, you feel out of control. That's all of the things I felt yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And so somehow you've got to dig yourself out of there. And Well, I'm talking to myself too because I you know, you focus on things you can't control. It's very easy to fall back into a default of stressing and worrying about things that are just happening around you. Mm. But I guess maybe the military side of it brings the discipline back Mm. to doing what I'd learned from psychologists, which is just focusing on what I think, feel, say and do. That you can control. Now, all this stuff sounds rational and I'm... I know. I'm back, on, I'm back on meds now. I was I was off meds for a long time, but I had to get back on because I just wasn't able to... 
I could flick the switches by myself, but then they started just getting stuck on Doom and I was able to – I could throw as much rationality as I yeah. wanted at them, but it just wouldn't wouldn't open up again. So I had to get back on meds to loosen those gears up a bit. And even so, I know what you're saying to me is completely rational. Yeah. And as much as I want – in like, the moment. Come on, brain. Yeah. Just accept I that know. as reality. And, you know, as much as, I don't know, like, hey, everybody, we just changed the rules. We're driving on the other side of the road as of tomorrow. All right, it's going to take me a week to figure it out, but great. And then that's it. You know, I wish my brain could just go like that. Yeah, but it just, the, those neural pathways are so heavily grooved in. It's like we drive, we have two cars in our family, and one indicator is where the washers are, and the other a washer is where the indicators are. So both Audrey and I, when we're driving, yeah, we're each the other, same with our cars. Yeah. It drives me I'm insane. Like, All the evidence is in front of me. <laughs> the sign, it's even there. It has an indicator bar on it, but my hand keeps turning the windshield wipers on when I want to turn. Yeah. It's like because there's this automatic thought process that I goes faster than I can move but your self-awareness about what you're actually dealing with is very high which puts you at an advantage it might not feel like it to you but (laughs) certainly puts you an advantage of a lot of people who can't even stand outside themselves and look at what they're going through right but you know that doesn't help you when you're in the moment you're there saying i don't want to feel this way or think this way yeah at least you know you're doing it that's (laughs) got to be one step in the right direction Well, look, I'm grateful that. You, do you have enough to drink? Do you have you yeah, liquid? Yeah, I have. I'm we, great. We tend to talk for a while in here, and you know, people get parched, and I, you know, I don't. <laughs> if want... If I go silent, anyone listening to this, it's because I've passed well, if you out need a, through if you need dehydration. A, you know, if you need water or a toilet or whatever, they have both here at the Batuta Studios. We're <laughs> an amazing bunch of people. Did you say hello on the I on did. the way? Yeah, I that's, did. That's Clancy Overall. Ah. When you see byline Clancy Overall, that's him. Okay. The man that like. Proper lumberjack. <laughs> you know, he's Brisbane boy. Gosh, yeah. okay, there you go. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're Brisbane, Brisbane lads as far as I can, as far as I can gather, um, which I'd love to get to because I yeah. know there's a fair amount of uh, similar Brisbane stuff. But I did want to ask you this when we met the other day at the Twitter event, but I don't know if it would have worked that way. At Amberley Air Force Base, would you have ever gone anywhere near one mil at Yoronga or was that only Army? Uh, that's army, uh, yeah. Right. So I know where it is. And, yeah, right. Um, well, it's but... not there anymore. My mum worked there for 15 ah, years. Yeah. There you go. What was she yeah. doing? She was a doctor. Oh, She fantastic. was a civilian doctor, yeah. 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 She was the first wave of female doctors, civilian yeah. doctors brought in. I know that military hospital. Um, I didn't ever have to. Oh, actually, I did go there. I got my wisdom teeth out at the Yoronga Military Hospital. Right then. In 1996. Mum would have been there. Oh, maybe she took my teeth out. No, she wouldn't have done that. (laughs) She would have probably prescribed you something or... I just remember that was the first time I got given, you know, whatever painkiller medication you get after a painful thing like that and thinking, (laughs) wow, what the hell's going on? So, and I wanted to talk to you about this because she started there in 1985. Right. And I don't know how long they've been accepting um, women into the army at that point, but it couldn't have been long. Uh, I don't know about doctors. They've had women in the army in different ways. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously been um, yeah. one of those frontiers mm. and different roles that yeah. women are allowed to go in. But I remember her coming home from work in the first week, <laughs> number one, she, I think like two days in, she, I'm one of four boys, I'm two of four, and she looked at all of us and she said, don't any of you ever join the army, ever. <laughs> Why did she say so she'd been there? Well, she'd been there two days and she goes, they own you, they own you. <laughs> There's, your body's not yours. Don't ever do it. It might be different now, but in the 80s, that was... I don't think they were selling, you know, organs or anything no, like that. No, but it was like as far as, you know, she was seeing people who had should not have been 
going to PT, being sent to PT, right. you know, and just watching guys just destroy their knees and, yeah. and, and st- like injuries for life, you yeah. know, they, 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 they weren't allowed, to, being overruled basically, something like that, you know, yeah. stuff like that. But I remember at the time her just disbelief that there was no STD clinic. And she's like, you've got nothing but 18 to 27-year-old men and you haven't got a sexually transmitted disease clinic here. She started the first one it was in Good the on mid her. in the mid eighties. Wow! In the mid eighties, you know, she's a trailblazer. She was, but it, and it, but it 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 got got me definitely thinking about how things like that were just beyond people's yeah thinking. You know, we don't want to think about these people as human sexual beings. Um, you know, they are grunts who carry stuff from A to B and shoot where they're told to. <laughs> well, there's some pretty long history of, yeah, I mean, millennia of treating um, soldiers like grunts that mm. just go if into battle. And What's that line from Chernobyl? Warm robots. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Or getting no, a bio-robots. Isn't that an amazing bio series? Bio-robots, yeah. yeah. Have you listened to the podcast? Yeah, that was really good too. <gasps> that was extraordinary. And you realise how accurate it is. Yeah. What I can't believe is people are going on holidays though and doing their Insta yeah, photos. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no. I wouldn't do that. And I was, uh, and also, what I can't believe, and I was talking with Peter Drew in here the other day about this. What I also can't believe is there's in the 50s and 60s, I guess, you know, we saw a lot of airline disaster movies and they were terrifying. Yeah. You know, it was you know, people going on holidays and dying horrendously. So, and being, you know, trapped in the mountains and eating each other and stuff yeah, like that's that. Right. But because of all those accidents, now airlines are incredibly safe. And because of all the accidents, <laughs> nuclear power is now safer than anything else. But shows like Chernobyl make people think, it's actually, and it's a real shame, you know, it's a real shame how, mm. how safe nuclear power is. You don't is. think people can separate 1980s Russian situation to what we would have in any Western, I suppose because of Japan as well, all those People, no one disaster. was harmed. No yeah. one was harmed from Fukushima. Nobody no, was, there was no radiation at all. It was people hurt, got hurt. Escaping, people got hurt yeah. running away. But whole cities have been evacuated from there, and they're still not living in their homes. Is that mainly because the infrastructure is destroyed, or is because there's a radiation danger? Oh, oh I thought that was because of the radiation danger. We should explore. I don't know. Well, I have no idea. You and I do not know enough about yeah. this, but I think people were harmed. Maybe they didn't die. But they were certainly inconvenienced given they're still not living in their homes. Well, there was a tsunami. <laughs> yeah. It was terrifying. Yeah, a lot of people died. Uh, yeah, from that, absolutely. Mm. The, the people died from... I can't believe we're debating with <laughs> nuclear power. No, I... But you're right. I mean, popular culture, you're in the middle of it, yeah. the thick of it. It influences attitudes yeah, and behaviours and views. It, it, it really does. And personally, I think it's a great shame of you know, modern science, that the communication around nuclear power is is so so negative and the communication around things like coal power is just so, fuck yeah, we're Australian and Australians are awesome and here's an animal bloke in high vis on it, you know, building Australia. No, you're not. Love your voice. I watched the Mojo <laughs> documentary last night. Did you see no, that? What's that? Uh, well, it was about the advertising team, Mojo, oh, right. that did Amazing. all the, yeah, the Tui's ads and the Come On Aussies. The and, Mojo Singers. And that voice that you just put on, was they were the first to sort of, yeah. you know, really respect and value the broad Australian accent. Yeah, anyway. you can get it milk yeah. the cow. <laughs> 
I know, I've got it now. Something <laughs> yes. like that. But anyway, Amazing. they're brilliant. And Meadow Lee, and they did the Qantas, um, still call Australia home, like all those ads that we grew up with yeah. that were fantastic. Yeah, they were, you know, very, very clever, very, very clever jingle writers and very, yeah. very clever advertisers. Oh, but I guess it was also a simpler time. There was only three commercial networks, and so it was pretty easy to get a jingle stuck in people's heads. And, there was <laughs> and no we mute- were all watching TV on a Sunday night movie. There and were no mute buttons. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only thing I can tell you about ads now is that every freaking ad has a dog in it, and I know that because my dog barks at dogs on the telly. <laughs> so every ad break is traumatic, uh, traumatic in our home. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we were talking about the military. <laughs> we were talking about uh, nuclear power and bio robots. Um, but you know, I, I would like to you know you know talk a bit about your experience as a woman in the Australian Armed Forces because I, only because of I my association with mum and and being on base and seeing the way that the COs talk to each other and you know talk to her and it was just normal. You know, and uh, re- reading your book, I was—I I got a couple of flashbacks to like, oh yeah, I remember I'm talking about that kind of stuff, and mm. some of the words that you used as well um, were a bit a uh, bit full on. Um, but how did the idea? I mean, if my eldest now, she's nearly sixteen, so if she says I'm off to join the air force, you know, I don't know how I'd feel about it. How did you, as a teenager, you were seventeen? Yeah. How, did, how did you, as a teenager, come to? Here we go. Yeah, so um, I came from a military family, so I do think there's something about being exposed to just the traditions and understanding the Mm. military that made that a little easier. But I was at a private girls' school. They'd never had someone go off to the Defence Force Academy, and I remember them saying, you know, we really don't think this is a good idea, and there's lots of other things I could have done. But I loved the idea of being paid to go to university, so I was 17, 18-year-old thinking, well, this sounds all right. Mm. And I knew that for all the challenges, with the military and I I really didn't understand some of the gender differences there mm-hmm. might have been at that point but I knew you got really great leadership training and I wanted to be an officer in the Air Force so I went off to ADFA and I was there all through the early 1990s which is now been the period of time they've done the government's investigated and there's been Four Corners episodes and um, a lot of oh. criticism of how women were treated at ADFA at that time. And I really totally understand why because it was really pretty difficult and sexism was just an ingrained part of the culture. It wasn't, you know, just an unconscious bias you might hear about. But I knew no different, you know, I just didn't recognise or see what was so obvious now looking back as just overt misogyny or sexism. And I fortunately did really well. So I don't know what that says about me, but I ended up doing incredibly well in that environment. There was less than 10% women of the thousand cadets and I ended up uh, duxing my Air Force graduating class. And I think what that taught me though for years, decades to come, was that the way for a woman to get ahead in that kind of male-dominated environment was to just fit in. So I just fit in and didn't see what was so obvious. And I think when anyone's in a culture where that culture is so strong, you know, I'm not too hard on myself. I think we all were the same way. Um, you didn't recognise that what was unacceptable behaviour was actually happening. But ADFA at that time, you know, for all the camaraderie and some of my closest friends are still the cadets that I went through with, there was this sort of insidious culture of silence that you didn't report anything and you were taught that from the first second you got off the bus and we yelled and screamed at by older cadets and even as an older cadet, you know, that was just part of 
the core, that's how you got ahead, the core of officer cadets, is you didn't ever report anything from mild infringements through to criminal offences. And I think that was just a toxic environment of silence that was perpetuated and that they've now done really well to stamp out. So if I had to think about what some of the core problems were at that time, it was that you give 17 to 19-year-olds a huge amount of power and control and authority. And it was a bit like Lord of the Flies, really. And I look back at people who dared to speak up and they invariably were ended up having to leave. They'd be excommunicated and sort of pushed to one side. So it certainly taught me about resilience and fitting in and adapting your leadership style, but it also taught me a huge amount more about how not to lead and what not to do in a culture when you're leading. What I did find fascinating about that part of the book was none of those things were written down. None of those things are this is how you behave, this is how you treat a woman, this is how, you know, if there's two people who are up for a role, you give it to the man. None of those things, this is the word you use when you're describing a female recruit versus a male recruit, or sorry, cadet, you know, there's, none of those things were written down, yet this cultural learning was passed from person to person to person. These ideas were passed from person to person and person and, and lived within the rules and regulations of the thing as a subset and is carried by this core of employees in a company, it would be, this core of staff that just nebulously keep it alive. It's an organism. It is, Culture isn't it? is an organism. It, it truly is. Yeah. It truly is. And, then, and it expels from it yes. any cells that mm. don't actually fit in. It or, is. Or attach themselves. Yeah. And so it's self-regulating in that regard. Yeah, and to address it is so personal because this is what it is to be at this company or to yeah. be a fireman or a cop or a doctor in a hospital or a teacher or this is just this is how this is where we are you know mm. it's this unspoken thing that just moves on and you osmose it from others when you first arrive and you mimic and ape the, mm. the, those around you so as to be accepted for as you said if you speak out against it, it is the cardinal sin how do you even begin to separate this organism of behavioural culture from what a company or a, a business or, in this instance, a regiment does? Mm. How do you even start? Well, I think it's breaking down the lifeblood. What gives it um, power or what do you recognise as success in that environment? And so what they did at ADFA was completely overhaul the entire structure of the organisation. And so whereas we used to live in divisions that were basically whichever, there was one to 24 and you know, we were in a squadron and in a division, just through luck, whatever one you were given really determined your fate at that place. And there was a really strict hierarchy. And so in third year, I had four you know, stripes on my shoulder. I was very senior and it gave me this ridiculously significant amount of power of a thousand cadets that no 19 year old should be given. So they broke that all of down because it's getting rid of the structures and the systems that actually help you to then change what the culture is. But I'm sure it took years for them to get rid of some of those thoughts as cadets. So, for example, you were talking about uh, STDs, which made me laugh. Fraternisation was totally banned. So if you had a natural relationship, you know, as whether it was with a man and a woman or worse, it was banned when I was there to have a homosexual relationship, which is, you know, even worse. And it makes my skin crawl now to think, 
anyone who may have um, had that relationship going on were totally excommunicated or whatever. I mean, it's just awful. So getting rid of all of those kinds of rules and regulations and recognising what's natural and normal and celebrating different successes, I think, is part of the way you can change cultures. In organisations, it's firstly having leaders actually willing to open their eyes and see what's going on. What if... And, and as someone who's sat on boards for years and boards of all different capacities, charities and businesses and ASX companies, etc., what if the person or people who are responsible for the most percentage gains of whatever KPI that thing does are also those responsible for you like yeah what do you do what do you do if it's the founder or the co-founder or the ceo what do you do well i have a pretty firm view on that is that they've got to go if you're serious about a culture then they're mutually exclusive you can't have people and they're called the rainmakers in some organizations they bring in all the money or they bring in all the customers but often they are the worst behaved individuals in an organisation that breach all the values that you put on your wall. I mean, there's no point to have those values if there's very public examples of people who aren't living them. So they need to go. When they're the founder, I mean, that's more difficult, but often that means good people do leave. So the Mm. founder might stay and that is the culture and you might find if that's how they behave, then that's the culture they are people Tolerate. beyond are people beyond retraining or things like that or interventions? No, uh, I think if you're self-aware and willing to actually hear what people say about the impact you have on them, then it's entirely possible to um, learn about your own behaviours and, and to adjust them. But that takes a lot of emotional intelligence, and if you don't have emotional intelligence, I think that is harder to learn. It's possible, but you've got to be really willing to learn and be humble. And the behaviours we're talking about are the opposite of each other. So if you've got someone who's that badly behaved that they're affecting a culture, they're probably less likely to be a humble leader that's prepared to be self-aware and look at their own behaviours. So that's where it gets challenging. Right. I can only speak from experience, and I've, I've spoken about this on this show before, and that as one of four boys, someone who went to an all-boys school, in Brisbane, wasn't in it? Brisbane, and the only woman in my life really was my mum, my accounting teacher, who was a. That would have been unusual in and of itself. Yeah. yeah, my my accounting teacher was a, a force of nature. She obviously didn't influence you to go into accounting. No, <laughs> uh, I thought the, the views that I had of women and what women are capable of were just the views that I had. I didn't realise what they were until I got into the workplace, and. It was very obvious very quickly, but I only found out, I was like, why is everyone in the meeting room angry at me? I just said what I would have always said. Why are people upset at me now? Why am I having to have a meeting with this other person after that meeting? Why, what me? were you saying? <laughs> One particular example, and I wrote about it in, in, in the book I wrote about, um, I, I got my job at SAFM and I just, I basically, I shut the head of a department down. She had been there for 15 years. And I said, that's a stupid idea. It's so old. Who would want to do that? Like, that's so 80s. Nobody wants that anymore. That's stupid. And I'm 24 and I've been there about four days. And I remember afterwards my boss was like, mate, if you've got any more ideas like that, just, just, just bring them straight to me. <laughs> but was that a gender issue or was that for how you addressed both. someone else? I think both. Yeah. yeah. I, I both. I mean, I obviously wasn't there, but I wonder how much of that it wasn't anything to do with whether she was female or male. It was. Oh no, I'm perhaps... thinking. I think back to how I felt at the time and what I just what I. Okay. Kind of believed about the world. 
Now I remember my first girlfriend basically just going, seriously? Okay. She tells you what for? Yeah, she did. She's like, Good. this is how you got to, you know, you don't, you can't. So your mum and accountant teacher hadn't uh, educated you on, um, hey, dude, that's really not going to get you far. No, mum was different. Uh, she was a refugee. She was, you yeah. know, very much kind of survive, and yeah. it's, it's all very, you know, are you fed? Have you got a roof over your head? Okay, great. You know, <laughs> very, very pragmatic. Four boys by herself from when the oldest was thirteen. Six day weeks at the military hospital. So it was, yeah. she was busy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, all, all I knew about women is the and, and how to deal with them, and I just kind of osmosed from this bloke culture of the work, the the school that I went to, and the guys I was hanging out with, and you know, it was only as an adult. So how have you evolved? What what has helped you see um, a different way? I think most definitely there's one particular person I, I must give a huge amount of thanks to, and that's a, an incredible woman by the name of Yumi Steins. Oh, yeah, she's who, fabulous. Like, yeah, I worked with her from the age of 26, and she would just daily go, <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> Good on her. Yeah. I was like, but I was, it, it wasn't out of malice. It was just, you know, yeah. it was like, uh, I would come home and repeat jokes that I'd heard at school that everybody laughed at that had horrendous racial slows in them. Yeah. And my mum would go like, what? But I'm like, well, everybody laughed at school. Why don't yeah. you laugh too? Because, you know, I didn't know that it was just horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. I just didn't. I think there's a lot of people I was looking just clueless. back. Yeah. Look, you've got Trudeau in blackface. Boy, howdy. Not okay. Not Justin, okay Justin, Justin. He was my poster child for a <laughs> politician. Gone. You're going to have to. How do you even run if you've got that in your past? I don't know. You you have to come up in your campaign and just go, here's the stuff that I did. He pretty much has now. Yeah. It's amazing it didn't come out last time. Anyway, we're off topic. Yeah, I'm. I'm, No, there's no. I I have to be somewhere in an hour and a half. (laughs) We can go in off topic as much as we like. (laughs) It's a conversation. It's fine. So I remember being quite unprepared for life as that yeah. and, and um well so you can imagine girls who yeah. the absolute opposite to you have never expected anything but total equality and mm. you know it's just that's the way it is i've never been taught anything else and then suddenly mm. that's not quite how the world is was your school and you went to skeggs here, i went didn't to you? skeggs what was your school like? well it was just reinforcing to every girl you can do whatever you want and yeah. you can be whoever you want to be and you know merit is how the world works <laughs> and um <laughs> you know off you go so it is an education for a lot of girls yeah. as well when they get into the workforce and learning to even recognise it. And I, th- I look at my daughters who are, you know, adults, young adults, and even though everything I talk about and they know that I believe in, I think it's really hard for them to grasp there could be a pay gap, a gender pay gap. They're just – it's so hard to get your head around how that can possibly be, you know, how, how does that happen yet? Obviously it does and it will and it will to them. So there's a bit of denial until you can really get your head around it and experience it yourself. The gap between what you were told to expect from the world and what the world was when you graduated high school, Yeah. um, I certainly hope that's a much smaller gap than what my kid is going to experience. I think, though, what we should recognise for your children and certainly for me is that how privileged that gap is and was though. So I was graduating from 
a private girls' school and going off to an environment that I ended up doing very well and getting a university degree, I worry way more for the people who don't have even the benefits that I've got yeah. um, or women of colour or different intersectionalities. I mean, mm. they're facing far bigger hurdles and I think it's then beholden on all of us to be saying how can we bridge mm. that gap, you know. It's something that, well, you know, I've dealt with but it, I feel very privileged still to have had the faculties and the skills mm. and the education to be able to deal with it as I Very have. much, very much so. Yeah. You mentioned merit before. I remember being told that. When are we just going to tell, you know, the young people of our country, like, you know, <laughs> this whole idea of meritocracy, you know, that's the thing that we, again, that's the thing we have written on the wall in the lobby, yeah. but how it actually works. <laughs> I know. it's And it's like, you know, I don't want to think merit, isn't true I, because it's so ingrained in your DNA that, that we're an egalitarian nation. Mm. We merit and a fair go and everything being equal. It's just I don't know any other way to be, but <laughs> it's just not how it is. And I think understanding that merit is in the eye of the beholder and having, again, coming back to self-awareness, and I'm going to talk about that a lot because it's sort of crucial to everything. Mm. It's knowing when I'm recruiting for something or if I'm speaking to someone, I come with all my own baggage and shit and views on the world and biases and that impacts my view of what's meritorious in that given situation. And so you need to have people with checks and balances and diverse views and, mm. and different perspectives to say, hang on a second, you know, just because that's what you did when you were recruited into that role, actually we don't really need, you know, to have a cookie cutter review. Let's mm. get someone different. But we, we, we're so, as humans, we just so run on the psychology of here's a line of code that worked, here's an operation that I was, you know, I needed something, I did that, I got something. Okay, that's what I'll do forever. Okay, that's my, my set routine that will happen to the end of my life. All right, and we might get 50 years before we realise, actually, that's really damaging to the person who's halfway along that code. Yeah. You know, <laughs> or am I just, do we never question it? Am I just doing this because it's where it was always done? You know, and then, you know, you, you, you read about those extraordinary uh, tests and studies they did with auditioning for orchestras behind a screen. Yeah. And they made everyone take D their shoes off so you couldn't tell by the gate if it was a male or a female. Or from the clicking of the heels. Precisely. I mean, they had to go that far. Precisely. It's incredible. And, being, and then suddenly seeing the, the female employment <laughs> yeah. of the orchestra just skyrocket because the people who were auditioning didn't realise yeah. how their unconscious biases had been. I was talking to someone who's uh, reasonably well-known now, but when they first came to Australia, they've got a male name. They're a woman, mm -hmm. but it's a male name. Well, it's both, obviously, because they're mm. a woman. Yeah. But when they were submitting CVs before they were known, um, they got endless interviews because people just misunderstood and thought they were a male. So, I mean, it's a um, survey of one or an exercise of one. But uh, now that she's much more well-known, obviously it doesn't work. And she notices it. Like, there's just a yeah. difference. But, yeah. 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 Crazy. Well, it's, 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 I think it's something that we just, we just need to be aware of, you know. Yeah, just, just know it's there. Just absolutely know it's there. When it came time to leave the military where is there a reason that you didn't stay because you know you've done incredibly well yeah and and you could have been like still there you could have been the career you know <laughs> could have been you could have been all the way in Canberra making calls yeah. <laughs> pointing at maps and, and sending squadrons I could have been I think I'd always known I wasn't a career military person now I'm married I'm a walking cliche so on after leaving ADFA, I was 21 I was single and got posted to RAF base Amberley to an F-111 squadron 
On the second day, I'd obviously watched Top Gun far too many times. I met my now husband who was flying F-111s. So, you know, the rest is history on that front. And he was looking very handsome in his flying suit, although that wears off a little bit after 25 years, (laughs) but he's still fabulous. Anyway, so I was there in the squadron, loving life, loving him, and I'd always wanted to do law. And I'd started law straight after ADFA and kept going and then found an opportunity to go and work with a law firm. And I'd intended to go and practice. So Mm. I thought, oh, that's my calling. I'm going to go and be a law firm partner. And in the end, that's not what I did, but I did get become a solicitor. I'm very focused. So Mm. I put my mind to something and off I go. Can we talk for a second about pilots? Yeah. About particularly um, Air Force pilots? Yeah. What is it? (laughs) What is it about them? Mm. I don't know. I was 21 and single and he was gorgeous. Um, Look, I think... I've got such admiration for aircrew because they do put their life in danger on a daily basis. It's a remarkable job. When I was in the Air Force, I was asked whether I wanted to retrain to become an aircrew and and fly. And I didn't because firstly, I would have failed the course. I think unless you absolutely passionately love it and are born to do it and you've got great hand-eye coordination, which I do not then it's not for you. And these guys are all just a passionate air crew. Mm. And so it was wonderful working with them because they're really skilled at what they do. So I think it's a pretty admirable profession, um, but challenging, you know. Um, It's one that you've got to be prepared to go off to war. Yeah, I've I've met a few for the the IDF, Israeli Defence Force. My my ex and I, I used to spend a fair bit of time over there. She was Israeli and I met a, you know, yeah. there was one particular guy I was quite close to. And you think about like, here's a guy who has to make split second decisions yeah. at 1,500 kilometres per hour, you know, push a button that will probably kill a couple of hundred people because someone in an office a thousand kilometres away has told him to do it. Decide so if I turn left, you know, at, at, in that part of the world at that speed, you go the wrong direction in eight sec- for eight seconds, you've caused an international incident because you're now suddenly over <laughs> Iraq, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, f- fly home and get everyone home safe. Like, yeah, it- well, that's why they're trained very well. I mean, I really feel on that um, pushing a button and, you know, people tell you to, I feel for drone pilots now who haven't even left the ground yeah. and they're in a, um, a bunker somewhere. They could still be in their home country. They're in Nebraska. Yeah, yeah, they exactly. drive to work. That's the wildest um, thing, yeah. I think the psychology around that's even more interesting because you're even further removed from the people whose lives you are impacting. So it is, it's a really interesting career choice for it those is. who do it. But and they I, are passionate. They really do feel passionate about yeah. what they do. And, and I, I guess while we're, while we're here, while we're in this area, it's difficult for a lot of people, I think, to reckon that part of the reason that we have the life we have is because people do do those jobs yeah. on our behalf. Exactly. And it's it's tough to understand that, yeah. that we are here because somewhere there was some violence. Yeah, and it's out of sight, <laughs> out of mind. I mean, it's so hard many to understand it, you know? people I know have been over in the Middle East on exercise over the last sort of decade and it's tough for their families who are left back at home and, yeah. um, you know, we never talk about what it is they're doing over there, but it's tough and I've got such respect for them. So Yeah. I don't think I could – well, I know I couldn't do it. No. no, no, no. Was it, is it hard to get out of the Air Force? <laughs> or do you just say, do you just give you 30 days and you go or do you have to wait for <laughs> – Well, um, 
it, yeah, you just have to notify them. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day, they yeah. had messages and an old telex, <laughs> so mm. uh, off I went. Yeah, but so yeah, it was a real adjustment. And on my first day in a civilian office, I called my boss sir, which yeah. was rather embarrassing because. That's not what you do. Uh, but I think he quite liked it. So <laughs> it only happened once. <laughs> yeah. uh, what was the transition like from this super male-dominated? I should ask, actually, what did you do with your femininity and what it made you to be a woman while you were in the ADF? I wrote about this in my book. I think I hoped no one noticed I was a female at all. I think I was learning that to survive and get ahead, I just fitted in. And so I think you really ended up becoming the culture that you're part of. And yeah. at the squadron, it was very um, testosterone-driven. Obviously, I was the only female officer there. But the people were much more mature than when I'd been at ADFA where they're 17 to 19-year-olds. So yeah. there was a different kind of inappropriate jokes and things. In fact, one of the things I'm really proud of myself that I remember from back then when I was about 22, so we'd have lunch in the squadron crew room every day and everyone would be in there and it was, you know, really good fun. But it was just endless dirty jokes. And I, and this is before I even recognised that that's, you know... Really, I just remember thinking, oh, do I really have to, you know, every single day? So I ended up um, making a deal with them that we'd just, I think it was a Tuesday. Tuesdays were dirty joke day and you could just totally fill your boots. But could we just have like the other days where it wasn't? And good on them as well. Uh, that's what it became. And so you talk about self-regulating. I remember someone, you know, might start a joke and someone would go, no, no, it's not Tuesday. You know, you've got to wait till Tuesday. And they respectfully, it was my way of trying to influence a culture that I was definitely outnumbered in. And I couldn't even articulate probably to myself why I didn't just want to sit there day after day hearing dirty jokes. But it worked. And it was, uh, yeah, it was anyway wasn't hardly changing the world, but back in that environment then, it, it made life um, better, which was good. But I loved being at the squadron and I just fitted in. Yeah, that's yeah. how I made it work. Do you find in your work that you've found women who otherwise have, you know, quite feminine traits outside of, of work find themselves appropriating more masculine ways of behaving or... Or disguising? Uh, not well. I don't find that now, and I don't do that now. I think authenticity is probably the number one thing I learned after I'd been in the air force, and um, whether that means you're f well, however that might make you, mm. um, because everyone's sexuality and way of being is unique to them, and they should be whoever they want to be. Uh, I think I learnt that over time, though, and so now. I just am who I am talking to you now or whether I'm with my girlfriends or at home or in a board meeting. Um, it's too exhausting being someone you're not. And I think that's something it's taken a long time to learn. But it's amazing the successes that come when you're just yourself rather than whoever you think people expect you to be. So, like, it's this is really... Um, we're opening up here, Osha, which you're quite liking. But, I mean, this is inane, really, to anyone else. But I've got really curly hair. But for 20-odd years, I thought I needed to have straight hair to, you know, be seen as professional. So I would go and get it professionally, chemically straightened, and I'd spend hours all the time getting my hair straightened. And it's only been a few years now where I've stopped doing it. And part of it is me feeling authentic about, you know, this is just who I am and 
this view that of what you think is professional is all in your own head. Yeah. And the satisfaction it actually now gives me to take 30 seconds to do my hair and walk out the door and think, well, that's just how it is. So I know that's a really surface level. It seems really silly, but everyone's going to have their own little things that all. they do to empower themselves to yeah. be authentic. I think personality-wise I have been authentic for a long time, but I'd still kept this mask mm. of, you know, what I thought I needed to look like. Mm. And um, giving up on that's been just so liberating. It's been fabulous. Uh, not to mention the amount of hours that you now get back <laughs> I mean, I know. to go and do stuff that you'd rather do. Yeah, all, all of the above. But yeah. um, it's just being yourself. But I'm sure that I'm sure many people do that. Whether it's no, these are the clothes I only ever wear to work, and when I socialise, yeah. I, I don't wear them. Or yeah. you know, this is the name people call me at work. Yes, uh, which is you know, uh, people have that as well. Yeah, you know? that's or, true. You know, oh shit, there's someone I work with. Let's go. I can't be seen. Yeah, I can't have the universes cross. They can't see me in my relaxed... So that's exhausting, really. It, I can imagine. It yeah. Would be. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you're, um, when you enter the, the, the corporate world and you touch upon this and this is kind of where the Celebrating Women has its genesis, we, as humans, we kind of tend to identify, okay, that's not my competition, that's my competition, that person's probably as close to me as me. All right, I just need to be better than that person in any, you know, that's just... There's a part of our brain that identifies that, right? When you're in an office where there's 30 people and there's two women, that starts to happen, doesn't it? Yeah, but I didn't see the other women as my competition. I think I've always been ambitious, mm. so it would be more on who's, and invariably it'd be a man mm. who's in a role that I think, actually, I can do that better than them or, mm-hmm. you know, that's where I aspire to be, mm. unless it, the woman was in that position. So I don't know that I was ever feeling competition with other women just because they were women. Uh-huh. Um, but I definitely was always wanting to get somewhere. I never knew why. I never thought about what I was going to do when I got there. Hmm. I just, you know, wanted to get there. So Hmm. that was probably more where my focus was. Yeah. And when it it comes to women in the workplace that do compete with each other, you you definitely started to notice that 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 was something that needed to be addressed, didn't you? Yeah, but not when I was there. Um, I think I felt victim to thinking that women don't support women Mm. and that there's queen bees and that they're all out to, you know, be like in the movie Working Girl. Mm -hmm. God, I loved that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But I hated how, you know, you couldn't both succeed. The career woman had to be the evil person and they were each fighting for the guy and the job. So I didn't recognise that, in fact, the whole system is set up so that those issues happen. When you do only have two women in the um, organisation and people are being recruited because it's not merit, as we were saying, and, in fact, oh, we probably do need a woman, so then you've set those two women up to compete. I think that's the system that's broken, not the women themselves. And even now I talk, obviously, to heaps of groups of women and I talk about women supporting women and celebrating women And they'll say, but I had a boss, a female boss, and she was just the worst. And, yes, we've all had those occasions, but we seem to remember the one woman boss, firstly because they're so rare, um, but secondly we somehow expect a lot more of women. And we're not perfect. So, yes, you're going to have a shitty 
female boss. That's invariably going to happen. But I'll always challenge the woman saying that. Have you ever had a shitty male boss? Oh, yeah, I've had five of them. Mm. Like, why are you only remembering the one woman and why is it we're expecting so much more of them? So I think we have that scarcity effect comes into focusing our mind where it's an unfair focus. And if I think of all the women in my life, colleagues, friends, whatever, 99% 99% of the women are supportive. You know, they mm. might be the one that's not. It's not accurate in my experience to say that women don't support women. That's just not what the evidence shows. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. It, it, but the, the evidence also does show that when it does come to employ, and I know I keep getting stuck on this, but it's just, you know, I think about it a lot when it comes to, for example, I had Briggs, the, the rapper, on this show and he talked about, mate, from the moment I wake up, he goes, me and another man, a white guy my age, from the moment I wake up, I'm this many times yeah. more likely to die of diabetes. I'm this many more times likely to be arrested. Um, because of that, I'm then that many more times likely to be taken to prison where I'm that many more times likely to like. The, the amount of likeliness that I have to not make it to the end of my day at 7.31 a.m. is that many more times greater than you and you're trying to tell me that we're equal? Yeah. So similarly, you know, when it comes to two people who are up for a job, Here's, you know, two lawyers, because that's where we are. Here's two lawyers. Here's the guy that went to such and such boys high school or whatever. And here's the girl. But he never had to deal with, you know, Mm. people pinching him or, you know, telling Mm. him, hey, nice ass or, you know, smile or whatever. He never had to, you know, he doesn't have to, you know, get to work through, you know, a a train carriage of people who are harassing him. You know, he doesn't have, he's, she is basically starting 500 metres further back down the track than he is. Mm. And they're, in a, in a race for the same finish line. Yeah. Uh, we don't really discuss that too much, do we? No. Well, that's back to the merit yeah. idea where because we want to believe everyone has got the same opportunities and if you apply for the job, well, you've both got an equal opportunity to be considered. And absolutely, there's so many unknown barriers or unseen barriers that that woman might have gone through. Mm. Or frankly, also that man, you you really don't know no. everyone's situation. But if we're just generalising yeah. between genders, yeah, absolutely. That is an issue that I think, again, unless you're opening your eyes and prepared to see it. I mean, I noticed one of the big four accounting firms is now banning asking women about what they're currently being paid when they're recruited. So, you know how one of the questions is, well, what package are you on? What would you like to be on? They are now not allowing that question to be asked because it sets up an inequality from the very beginning. So if that woman has been getting paid less, they come into the organisation on less because they're expecting less, et cetera, et cetera. And it's part of those blind CV sort of ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, we actually have to set up structures that make this possible to even attempt to get a meritorious level playing field, but we're a long way from it. What do those structures look like? Well, I think they are some of the examples where you have, make sure you have panels interviewing that are not all of one gender or all of one type of ethnicity or all of one type of person. So you've got different perspectives. Um, The blind CVs is a fantastic way of doing it. Not asking about gender pay, I think, is a really practical way where you're then forcing the company to pay what the job is worth, not whatever that person might have come through on. But more so it's um, leaders themselves understanding what their unconscious biases are and seeing they might have always thought of a role as needing these prerequisites. But when you drill down, actually, those prerequisites, generally there's only 5% of women have ever gone down that path Mm. and so they can't, you know, they're already behind. 
So I think when I, when I speak to um, you know someone who might be recruiting for a job and they'll say, oh, we wanted women but no women applied and they just kind of leave, that's full stop, you know, so we'll just hire another guy. If that happens to you, you really need to have a good look in the mirror and go, why are no women applying? What is it about our ad, about our culture, about when they rang up and asked about it and they got some person who said, oh, yeah, mate, or whatever it was that turned off a whole 50% of the population from applying, Hmm. you've got a problem. And I know there's many that will say, oh, but there's no very few women in engineering or whatever it is. If you go back to it, it's not true. (laughs) It's not true. And we lose women at crucial times, so we need to go back and understand why that is. But I think it's not enough to just go, well, none applied. That's it. That's such a cop-out. It's an extraordinary signal that any company can look to because if you're cutting yourself off from 50% of the talent pool, what let's just look at numbers. What does that do for your bottom line? Yeah, exactly. If you're cutting yourself off from 50% of the people that could have ideas, could have ways to contribute to make, you know, and perspectives that could make your product or whatever, your widget better, Yeah, your competition has that. Yeah, exactly. They're already ahead of you. Yeah, and it might be that all those fantastic women are with your competition because they've sized you up and gone, no way am I going to work there. We live in a country where maternity leave is taken pretty seriously. Uh, There are countries that do it better. There are countries that don't do it at all. Uh, We live in a country where paternity leave is taken seriously. Are you on paternity? Can you take paternity leave? This is kind of – I'm not getting paid by the government, but this is – everybody I work for, uh, work with, is very aware that this is baby time. So I'm doing a few things here and there. Okay. But, you know, at 4 o'clock this morning I was was doing baby stuff and I wouldn't want it any other way. I've had one week in a, since he was born. I've had one night where I had to sleep in the other room because there was something happening the next day that I was like, I actually need more than five hours and in, in a row. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't have sleep properly. But, uh, but I think that's so, so, so important. And even, you know, now he, as soon as I hold him, he settles because mm. I'm familiar, yeah. you know. If you're you, his dad. Well, true, but if you're a dad who like, you know, I, I forget Wolf Mother. You're what Wolf Father? <laughs> <laughs> New band name. Audrey's Wolf Mother. Uh, yeah, I'm so going to call her that from yeah, now on. Yeah, Wolf Mother. That's man. the best. She's got a whole <laughs> album of great theme songs. I mourn the men of the generation, and I wonder, you know, if this has got the predicament that we're in now, is because these are the guys who are making these decisions about our our world and our energy policies and our, our environment. You know, the, the nurturing caring part they were cut off from it they weren't allowed to be there at the birth they just it just wasn't they were expected to be working and get a phone call you know and then be at work the next day and they just weren't there they didn't watch the women that they loved in their lives go through this thing and i swear to you and i thought about this a lot and i audrey was like okay i'll get it like after three days i was just like i can't believe what i this is her second child i wasn't there for the first she had georgia she raised her by herself i can't imagine any man to witness the woman that they love, do what I saw Rodri do, <laughs> give birth with no epidural, just like yeah, bring, something the size of, bring something the size of a watermelon into uh, the world through a hole the size of a grape yeah, and create like d- divine 
creation, you know, like we there's a, a, a an ancient book written by people that they claim, you know, there's one creator. No, there's one creator. She lives in my house. Her yeah. name is Audrey and she made a human. <laughs> and like how could you see that and then still think that you have the dominant place in the relationship? How could you possibly witness that power and think that you are more powerful? Like when I say this all the time, it's like, Good deadlift, Trent. Nice, mate. But you can't do that and you'll never do that. <laughs> never in your life will you ever do anything like that. Preach. But I'm, I swear, <laughs> yeah. like, is that the issue? Is that the problem? That we have this generation of men who just didn't witness that and just can't appreciate that. Like, is you know, I just can't. I'm, I'm just gobsmacked. You know, when I see blokes go, like, trouble and strife or whatever, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Were you down the business end watching what was happening? Did you see what this human this created a human being, man? Like, That's pretty awe-inspiring. Yeah. It is creation itself. Yeah, and it that, is. And that, that power exists within every woman on this planet. No wonder men fucking fear it. No wonder they want to shut it down. Of course, it all makes sense. It all clicks. It's like, well, of course, that's more powerful than anything a man can do. Of course, he wants to dominate it. Sorry, but like that all like within the course of about eight hours, like it's just like that's it. Yeah, <laughs> I am just a dude that lifts things up and puts them down in a gym. That's it. That's as good as I got. <laughs> and for me, you know, I, I think you're underselling your role there. You did help. You know, uh, have this 23 happen, chromosomes was all I yeah. contributed. Every Although, cell. Well, having popped that thing out twice, the last <laughs> one 17 and a half years ago, the memory is still fresh. So I bet. It doesn't go away. But yeah, look, it is, uh, it's awe inspiring. And I'm glad you're getting some time. Because uh, yeah. I think where we need to go is normalising paternity leave. Mm. So I think that is a structural change that we've got the policies. So everyone mainly has policies around this. But culture, if your organisation isn't one where men actually take paternity leave or it's kind of sniggered at, then women are left taking maternity leave, having the break in their career. We need many more men. I mean, the second we can get to 50% equal sort of off on paternity or maternity leave, that's where you really start shifting attitudes and mm. doing it loudly. So if you're the boss of an organisation and your wife has a baby, go on paternity leave loudly. Tell everyone about it and tell them what you're doing. Send photos of the kids on Yammer or socials or whatever, Yeah, this will make change happen. What would I rather as a boss? Would I rather a boss that has n never cared and nurtured or changed a nappy or do I want a mm. boss that has spent at least a couple of weeks of their life at the mercy of a helpless thing looking after and caring for this thing that will die if they don't look after it? That's got to change the way you think about another person and another person's emotion. To have that fundamental emotional shift as far as just empathy goes will change how you make decisions in a company. Well, and back to being your style of leadership. So empathy is a core part of emotional intelligence. Yeah. The better leaders are those that are intellectually smart, which mm. I think is the easiest part of being a leader. Much harder is being emotionally intelligent and actually having that self-awareness, self-regulation, um, you know, being able to control your impulses mm. and uh, have empathy for others and really understand the impact you're having on those around you, you're experiencing that really up close oh, at man. the moment because the impact of you around Wolfie is if you're not there, he's going to, you know, have a pretty tough time. Don't want to tell you your son's going to no, die, but no, if you're an Audrey out there, no, we're humans. He's in uh, humans, deep shit. humans get born too early. <laughs> Every other mammal is born oh. able to oh. evade predators, feed by themselves if they need to, walk, run is their that ambulatory. True? They're still fairly helpless, though. Little foals that are born Fole can and walk. joeys. Foal can evade a predator. 
you know. Well, if they're lucky. <laughs> yeah, but more than a human baby. Yes. Okay, Human true. baby is very vulnerable. Is only reactionary. Human baby can't do anything yeah. that it wants to do. It just does stuff because nerve endings fire. That's it. <laughs> and it will do so for the first three or four months. And then it starts yeah, to do stuff the other way. So you have to you have to protect it. Yeah, it's essentially in the womb, but outside the womb for the first couple of weeks. So it's amazing. Anyway, um, yeah, so it's, I'm it's, loving it's, watching you with your <laughs> with the the impact a young baby has had on you because well, it's so clear you are right in. I'm it right at in the there. moment. Yeah, but it's, but I'm also <laughs> you know speaking to you. I'm also the impact of having this extraordinary young woman that I live with. Yeah, um, who's taller than me and powerful. Yeah. Like, she was powerful when I met her. She's I the was, wolf mother, man. I, no, no, yeah, I'm talking she, G. Yeah. So ah, G sat yeah. me on my ass when I was ten, when she was 10. I'm a 40-year-old man when I met her and I'm like just shut down by a 10-year-old. Like, fucking hell, I can't. That's a bigger energy than I can possibly muster. <laughs> and she's 10. And she's only grown more powerful. And, you know, she talks about, you know, how the way she moves through the world and, you know, you know we watch her interact and I'm like... Shit, man! I hope when you hit the workforce that you're prepared to deal with people who aren't ready yeah. to deal with a tall, beautiful, powerful. No, she'll woman. find a way. She'll be fabulous. She will work her, you know, path through the world, and she'll be a force of nature. She already is. Yeah. What and do you tell? What do you tell your daughters about? About that, what did you? Your your yeah. oldest is already in the workforce. She, uh, she's at university, second year, end of second year uni. Um, what did you tell them about? Okay, here's the world. You know what? You know, did you give them any guidance? There? Uh, yeah, of course. And we're always still talking about it as they're learning. You know, new <laughs> things that happen. Authenticity is massively important. Being kind to people uh, and thinking about the way and the impact that you have on people around you. So for me, it's always been about people and relationships. I've got lots of university degrees. I've had lots of important jobs I you know do lots of business things but none of it actually really matters if you haven't actually focused on the people that you're working with that you're doing things for the right reason that you're leaving a legacy that's actually really important and beneficial to others around you and that you're really focusing on the relationships you have so that makes life so much easier and it also makes you more successful. So I guess my advice to them, they're smart. Like I don't need to tell them anything about my eldest is doing biomedical engineering, which, you know, I, she's doing some advanced calculus. There is nothing I can offer. Absolutely no advice, no mentoring, nothing. So she's got the intellect. There's nothing I can do there. But what I can help her with and help guide her on is all of the wonderful parts of her character and qualities and values that she lives, reminding her of how they'll actually be what help her succeed, not the sheer intellect. And that at the end of the day, the people who get to the top of our companies, if that's what she wants, and that's the other thing is go do whatever you want. It actually doesn't matter anyway. But whatever it is you want to succeed at, generally when you look around, the people who lead our big businesses or whoever they are, they were not the smartest people in their universities or their schools. They've got all those other skills that actually they've been able to use to help build the relationships on the back of which they can then succeed. So that's always been my focus. And I think if my two daughters can go through the world and people remark that they're really good people and they happen to be really smart and great at whatever they're doing, then that's fabulous. So that's my advice to them. I couldn't. You know, I couldn't agree more. I, and I tell I tell you that all the time. You know, you look around any any set that I'm on, any, any crew that I work on, it's just generally the particular production company I work with right now, I, I don't think it's a, a, a written rule, 
it just seems to be just like a, a no dickheads policy. <laughs> that's the second time today I've talked about no dickheads policy. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's like, what we want. And I, I remember yeah. we were, you know, we often there's a lot of hurry up and wait in our industry. Yeah. You've got to rain, sun, whatever. You got to wait for it. And when you were having a chat the other day, I was like, who would you rather? Would you rather someone who's the absolute top gun but a bit of a dick? Or would yeah. you rather someone who's like, you're going to have to show them how to do 40% of it, but it's just a great hang, great hang every time. Yeah. Every time. And, <laughs> I mean, you'll do things for people yeah. when you like them, you respect them, and they're not a dick. And I think in business is absolutely no different. You want to be able to work with people who are different to you, so you need to be able to respect that the no dickheads policy can't mean just people like me. Um, you need to be able to have different dickheads around, <laughs> different non-dickheads around you. But I think we all know the people who are not team players who mm. are just looking out for themselves and who are there for the short term, not, you know, because they believe in what they're doing, all that sort of stuff. We all know what that looks like. Don't be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and is it, is it like poker though? If you can't, if you look around the room and you can't spot them, it's you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Well, we that's it. Self awareness. We're all the dickhead at sometimes. Yeah. Like all of us have our moments where actually, uh, and you know it in your gut when you say something and go, God, I wish I hadn't have said that. That is you having your dickhead moment. We're all, yeah. But the best thing to do is actually fess up and go, you know. <laughs> Like that really was not what I wanted to say. That doesn't reflect what I believe or yeah. whatever. Own it, be humble, and move on. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I was just talking to my, uh, one of my bosses. We're recording this like right around Jewish New Year. And um, I always uh, admired that built into their calendar is a week of tracking down the people that you've wronged, saying sorry to them, making amends, paying back debts. You know, oh, it's, that's it's, a good idea. And set wife it clean then. Yeah, yeah. It's basically like it's, it's you got. keep a list during yeah, the year. Yeah, yeah. And there's the Days of Atonement where they – and as someone who's in a program of sobriety that counts days yeah. and takes steps and one of the steps happens to involve making amends and – how many days are you at now? Uh, Sorry, I shouldn't have put you no, on no, that. He's no, that's looking fine. at his app. That's fine. Stand by. I'll tell you the exact number. Uh, 3,490. Congratulations. Yeah. That must feel good. Um, sometimes, look, like anything, and back to the very start of our conversation, I know how to do the overwhelming thing a day at a time for this Yeah. and an hour at a time for this. Yeah. I know how to do that. But for some reason, the climate change thing, I just can't. My brain already knows how to do the day at a time stuff, but I can't seem to get that 
boxing, just like, hey, well, we'll, we'll just see what happens today. That it's seems hard. to be. I mean, you've got your own professional advisors. I don't want plenty wanna, of them too. Yeah, but it seems like we all have the thing that you ju- that we become anxious about. That it just it's very hard to rationalise. Stuck on it, yeah. and that's clearly yours yeah. that you'll ruminate on. And yeah, well, it's yeah. good. I'm, the meds are helping a lot. The yeah. meds are, are loosening the bolts a bit, and the the feeling when I get the physical feeling when I get the triggers now is different. So something's shifting. I can feel yeah. it's less of a terror and more of a just like a horrible grief. And hopefully that's a good thing because I know grief passes. And I think that's an okay thing to grieve for. Yeah. Fuck, what have we done? This is an awful thing that we have done. And there's little kids that have nothing to do with it that are going to pay the price for this thing that we've done. Even your whole demeanour changes because we've gone back to that topic. Yeah. So we've been really chatting about yeah, yeah. all sorts vibes. of other things, the yeah. vibes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting watching you go back into that space very quickly and easily. The, yeah. Oh, man, my obsessive compulsive yeah. disorder is a beast. Uh, so I wasn't going to label it because I didn't want to, no, but no, no, I, it is clearly, yeah. yeah it's obsessive compulsive disorder. Yes. Yeah, but I know what it and is. That's, yeah. But that's how yours manifests yeah. Yeah. Uh, in that, and it's hard to let go of it for is. obvious it's a, it's, reasons. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah. it sucks, but it's not hand washing and I don't have to turn, no. turn doorknobs or to click yeah, lights, which but, is like that stuff trapped, like, Completely traps you physically. Like you can't actually move around. Though there are days when I haven't gone outside because it's been warm. But I'm much better now. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that's physic. That's tangible trapping. You're talking. Your brain gets trapped. Yeah, it's awful. So it's the same concept. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Audrey will catch it too. I can't hide a damn thing from her. Yeah, good. She's like, where did you go? Yeah. Oh, fuck, it must. It just must be written all over my face, like you just saw it. Yeah. She says, I think that's what makes me good at my job. Is that it's written all over my face. The stuff that I say is one thing, but everything else is written all over my face. So it makes me good at doing telly. Yeah. I just can't hide it. I'd be no. shit at Survivor because I can't lie. <laughs> Have they asked you? Would you go on Survivor? Oh, they haven't asked me, but if they did, you I would. do it. Oh, I would just do CrossFit five times a day. Yeah. I would. I would call up some of your mates from the SAS. You'd be fantastic. I'd, f- I'd find some sort we of, you know, like paratrooper guy to teach me I, how to lie. You and I bonded over Survivor. Mate. And, you know, we were talking about whether Janine was going to win and we didn't think she would nah. and she didn't. I didn't pick Pia, though. I did not pick Pia. I'm glad she did. I know too much about how the sausage is made. I know. You said, oh, I think I told you that when yeah. we first met. I know too much about how the sausage is made. So... There were nuances in the edit that no one else would have picked up on. Like Easter eggs that you have to pick mm, if you know what you're doing. Nothing that they've dropped deliberately, like an okay. Easter egg. It's just like the way the rhythm of the cut changed. Like, ah, uh, okay. Right. A couple episodes out from this, the end, it was like, okay. She's got it. Well, yeah. it, it narrows narrowed down. It was narrowed down. She did do very well in her pitch at the end. Man, and you mentioned, and let's tie this back to what you just said. There's Baden. He's made it all the way to the end. Yeah, he's gone through his whole life never having to persuade anybody of anything. His merit and his genius and his brilliance has got him to every room and got a yes every time. He's never had to emotionally persuade anybody, and when it counted, he didn't have it. So he had the intellect. He didn't have the social game, as they call it. He didn't, though. But isn't that everything, you know? Well, it is. But she's also an actress. So she combined not only a good social game, but she also delivered it brilliantly as well. Yeah. But she She, wasn't making it up. No, no, no. She deserved it. I I think even the next day, Luke tweeted out a 
Instagram, I think a picture of when they were doing one of the challenges, there's little Pam Miranda, 51 kilos of her or whatever, <laughs> with Luke, 90 yeah. kilos of Luke standing on her to get over her. <laughs> like she got under him Amazing. and let him stand on her. What I don't understand is why the guy who was the third to go. Harry. Why on earth Baden chose Pia over Harry? Harry? Yeah. That was a ridiculous error. Yeah. Rookie mistake. It's, uh, they're shooting the next season now and I can't, I think it's just, it's, <gasps> I think it's just such an exceptionally clever, clever television show because it really is, it's a metaphor for all of our lives. Yeah. It's a metaphor for the challenges that we, we um, have to deal with and the people we have to deal with and who we have to be to get what we want. See, I love thinking about how you'd go on it and I, I think I'd be crap. I'd be oh, yeah, a crap on Survivor. I can't lie to people. Though. No, I can't lie and then I just can't help myself. I'd be sort of organising people too early on <laughs> and I'd have to be inauthentic Yeah. and then it would all come out. Which is what undid Janine. Yeah, and <laughs> I think I that I could yeah. see her and you just can't help it. It's in your DNA. It undid David. It, yeah. undid, it undoes him every time. To sit back and be grey and just sort of try and cruise through is not what I'm used to. You can't do that it, either. No. Because then you're a goat True. and you can't. It's, oh, fuck, it's a good format. It is. It's a brilliant. very, very clever format. I still remember the very first one with Richard from the US. Richard Hatch, openly uh, yeah, gay. Uh, well, yeah. But remember he was strategising and I just remember thinking, oh, my God, that's so bad. I can't believe he's doing that. Yeah. But it was fantastic. 20 years ago. Fantastic TV. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Yeah. Um, did I tell you what the, the, the Fiji story? No. Okay, so my wife and I, Audrey's Fijian, and, and there's a particular island that we go to yeah, on so occasion. we go to the same one. We do? Which I won't say out loud if you'd rather people don't know, but I know from your Insta. We, we gather a bit and one of the dive crew there took two people who knew they were being cast on the US Survivor, which, as you know, is shot yeah, across, on two, two yeah, islands yeah, down. Yeah, have seen that hired some guys from the village yeah. on the nu- yeah. island straight across from there and they said, all right, show us how to build a shelter, show us what fish we can eat, show us how <gasps> to hunt prep. them. They were there six months out. They spent two weeks. And did it help them on the show? I don't know. I, don't think, I think they're shooting that season now because they know so far in advance that they're going to because they shoot wow. back to back over there. So, yeah, if I was going to do Survivor, I would do shit like that. I would go up to Savu Savu and be like, right, <laughs> I go into the village and go, Okay, fellas, ladies, what do I need to do? How do I prepare cassava so I won't kill me? How do I survive out Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, because you can eat cassava and it'll kill you or you but can eat then, cassava and be, and be fine. But everything we've talked about, yes, you'll be great. You'll make a shelter. You'll do all that stuff and it'll get you through for a while. Yeah. But if your true personality comes, not yours, but if you happen to be someone who's just not great yeah. and not a person people want to be around, you're going to go anyway. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we love TG and love that spot. So we met uh, at a Twitter event. I got there because I wrote a tweet about The Bachelor. Not that exciting. You got there because you created a social movement. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I think I think I got there because my one particular tweet. Uh, it was obviously a really good one, and it trended in fourteen countries. Okay, fine. But, but I didn't. I'm, I'm, I didn't pioneer a social movement, which you did. Yeah, and you've got lots of followers too. I That's, mean, you and your live tweeting of every show you're on or it, every night of the week. It's the new television. It's how we have to. Do it. it there's is. no there's no other way around it. This is what television is. Television is if you're not giving directors commentary while your show's on air, then you are not doing your job. How do your mentions go on those nights? Is it know. just crazy? I don't I don't keep track of it. Yeah. I don't know. I just get on there. But I, I have seen figures when I don't tweet and when I do tweet yeah. ratings figures and it's a different there's a difference. So I do as often so as I can. You are a force of nature. It's part of my job. I've got to do it. It is. And, and I love it. 
because it's the conversation. It's the goggle box of the country. It's the best. So when did you realize, oh, my goodness, to celebrating women? When did you realize this is big? And then, wow, people are noticing. It's like, oh, shit, now it's got its own thing. Now this <laughs> this cultural meme that I've put out into this, this yeah. world is now off. Like yeah, a, like a like it, a Easter show balloon yeah. off into the sky, and there's oh, nothing. Shit, it's now beyond what have me. I done? When did uh, you realize that? Well, pretty early on, it got way bigger, way more quickly than I was expecting. And had I known it was going to do what it was going to do, I probably wouldn't have done it. Which is a great lesson for not thinking too much about anything, just doing it if you believe in something. Um, because it all began with just a single tweet about my mum and I didn't tell anyone she was my mum and sort of got her to answer four questions and put some photos up. And I, the reason I did it was because I was sick of seeing just the constant denigration of women and I'd seen a particular thread of tweets aimed at a female ABC broadcaster and I just had the shits and I just remember thinking, enough. So I sent this tweet and and then thought I'd see if I could try and do it for two women every single day of 2017. Had no idea what I was doing, no idea where I was going to get them, thought this would all fizzle out and I'd look like a bit of a douche and uh, just hope no one noticed. That was pretty well how I went into it. That was my strategy. And uh, I asked a couple of friends to start with, can I ask you these four questions and can you send me some photos? And I put a tweet out saying, you know, does anyone want to do it? And it was just like wildfire, which this is pre-Me Too, pre-Times Up, pre-all of that. And it really was showed you the power of using social media for good. And in the end, I achieved my goal. I celebrated 757 women from 37 countries around the world. And it, yeah, became quite large and much bigger than I ever anticipated. It was a huge amount of work. Like the other thing I hadn't thought through is actually how I was going to do this every single day of 2017 because I already have a busy career. So it was like another job for that year, but it was just the most rewarding thing. All my anxiety was induced because I'd have a three-month queue at some points and there'd be these women sort of saying, oh, when am I going to be celebrated? I'm like, oh, God, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. But did it and it was amazing. And those women I feel such a connection to and the women I celebrated were not well-known, famous, high-achieving women. Um, there was no qualifying criteria to be involved. You just had to identify as a woman and I certainly celebrated transgender women as well. You didn't have to have any educational background, socioeconomic background, anything. Um, I just loved the diversity of the women. So uh, I celebrated retirees. There was a house painter, a pet whisperer from California, no surprise there, um, people from the Faroe Isle, a woman from the Faroe Islands, which I had to look up in, in my ignorance, which is up in the Nordic nations, and Montserrat, which is in the Caribbean and just everywhere, uh, and all doing different things and it was all about showing that women are role models every woman is a role model and what I learned through this whole campaign was you know this old saying that if you should be so successful you should lower the ladder and help other people come up behind you well I think that's a bullshit analogy I don't know whoever came up with it but a ladder first of all it's only designed for one person at a time and you hold on for dear life so you can't fall off. So no one can get past anyway. So what Celebrating Women taught me is you can throw down a fishing net 
and bring up many, many women together. And we can all hold the sides of it. So it was just amazing. But if you told me before that, that I was going to do this massive campaign, become known for celebrating women, write a book called Womankind, talk about women, I mean, I would have just thought you were crazy. Because as I told you earlier, I spent most of my career kind of hoping no one noticed I was female at all. But what a mistake that was. So, yeah, that's how it all came about. There was something so powerful in your book that I think is a message that is, is, is really I would love for you to share. And what do you have to say? I mean, you said to yourself, if you'd known, you'd never would have started. What do you have to say about giving yourself permission to do something? Mm. You don't have to ask or wait or... Um, hope that someone will suggest it to you to do anything. So say yes to yourself, let alone when other people offer you opportunities. But I think believing that you can actually make a difference. I mean, Greta Thunberg is a wonderful example of one young girl who missed school and has started a worldwide movement. Mine's not even, you know, we're not even in the same stratosphere. But it is an example, just like mine was, of one person just deciding they were going to do something and not feeling fear about that and not thinking too much about, you know, how will this affect me or how... There was no ulterior motive for what I did. Um, I think that's really important, having that authenticity about why it is you want to do whatever it is you want to do, giving yourself permission to actually just do it and then throw yourself into it head first. And there were plenty of times during that year I, you know, get anxious and think, what the hell have I done? And I know there was one of the mainstream media did an article and the headline was, you know, this woman takes on trolls. And I just, you know, I remember being at home thinking, oh my God, what has been unleashed? Because obviously that's a red rag to a bull. But interestingly, um, the campaign didn't attract a single troll like nothing. And even Twitter, I've spoken uh, with on a panel or on, a, on an event with Jack Dorsey, who was at the event you and I met at as well, about why that was. Because normally every campaign like this is just uh, Listen, a I don't magnet. know if you realise, but the jet skis of Queensland have a lot to say about loud women on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> it's always a jet ski or a ute or oh. a flag or oh, a picture of, Ned, a picture of yeah, Ned yeah. Kelly. It's like, come on, man. I know. Well, so I was really scared once it started to get big that I would be trolled, that the women I was celebrating who weren't public women, that they were going to get trolled, just that it was going to be really unpleasant. And it never happened. And so we've been asked or I've been asked why I thought that was and I asked Jack Dorsey too. He thinks it's because it was such a positive campaign. It's quite rare to just focus on the positive. So I think that was one of the reasons. But I think more so is that the women I celebrated were sisters, neighbours, colleagues, you know, the lady working in the checkout. These were women who we spend our lives with. And I don't know what kind of person can then start to... I know there are people out there that would, but they didn't. And I think had they, the community that was so supportive of this campaign probably would have come in anyway. But um, it was really quite remarkable. What and are some things that you can give yourself permission to do? Oh, believe in yourself. <laughs> you know, I think that's a big one and actually kick out the imposter syndrome. You know, I'm dreadful. I, I still deal with that all the time, um, but I've become a lot better at ignoring it now or hearing it and going, oh, yeah, I've heard all this before, move on. And that just comes with age and resilience and sort of being 
feeling able to have a go. But I think you can give yourself permission to be yourself. Uh, we were talking about authenticity before just how enjoyable that is um whatever the environment you're in and whatever your role is i don't think it means that you need to have a certain level of power or influence to be yourself i would hope that whatever you're doing you can find that authenticity so for me it's just about being able to give yourself permission to live the life you'd always hoped you were going to live uh, and make that happen, not just hope that it'll happen tomorrow or that someone else will create that for you. Yeah, it's almost like a two-step process, like, okay, great, and now take action. Yeah, go and yeah. do something about it. Or if you have that idea, not – like if I – honestly, when I said I wouldn't have done it, it's because I know myself, back to Survivor, I would have strategized. I would have thought, right, so I'm going to do this, then I'm going to roll this out, then I'm going to approach these people, then I'm going to, you know, whatever. I just would have overthought it. And it was so organic and accidental. And um, in the book I call myself an accidental activist because it was not in the plan. Uh, but how fabulous it has been. So, you know, I think go for it. You live a very full life. You live a life of a quiet profile. You do set yourself open for criticism. You do set yourself open for robust discussions with people who disagree with you. How do you look after yourself? What does your self-care look like? I'm really conscious of all of that. So, you know, like everyone, I struggle with anxiety and feeling down and having wondering where's my life going and what am I doing and am I adding value, all of those things. I'm good at recognising when I'm in that space and so I'm quite good at recognising what the triggers might be for when I'll start feeling that way as well and having friends and family and people who can basically take you out of your head. So when you start thinking in circles and, you know, can't let go of ideas, I know when that's happening. But I also try and do things that I enjoy. So I love writing. So I'm working on another book and that's nothing to do with the work that I do. It's researching and I'm in the archives at the Mitchell Library. Like that's just my happy place. So I try and um, do things that are for me really. And whether or not you know, the book ever is seen the light of day actually isn't the end point for me. But this particular idea is one I've had for 25 years when I first did a degree years ago. So, um, you know, that kind of stuff makes me really happy. So it's focusing on you're more than your job, you're more than what people might say about you and finding the essence of who you are and, and going from there and doing fun stuff. Going to Fiji. Yeah. I'm going to a gin distillery on Sunday with my f girlfriends, uh, you know, whatever it takes. Yeah. Do you look after the vessel? Do you take uh, take care of the maintenance? Yeah, no, that I'm bad at. I am bad at that. I go through fits and starts. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sitting here with my Pepsi Max, which I'm completely, I drink far too much of that. No. And in fact, if I was going to say where I need to do more, it's definitely focusing on the vessel, as you yeah. call it, because that's what will let me down in years to come. Well, that your health, what have you yeah, got? I know, I know, I know. Yeah. What is it about the Pepsi Max? Is, oh. it, is it the caffeine? <laughs> it's the ca Well, I don't drink tea or coffee, so well, it's the caffeine. I'll tell you, like a cup of coffee. Oh, here we go. A solid, nice espresso yeah. that I will make you at my home. <laughs> I don't like the flavour. That's fine. I can make away a, a coffee. <laughs> Has... There's so many things on the back of that label that neither of us can pronounce. I know. What are you doing putting it in your body? Phenylalanine or something. Yeah, yeah. Like just caffeine. Phenylatronics is, or something. Yeah. Please no one write to me and tell me what that's going to do to me. Coffee is a bean ground up. Oh, I know. And you put water Here through it go. and you drink it. Feel awake. Yes, Dad. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, look. Okay, moving on. <laughs> 
Your grandkids need to know you. I'm telling you now. Just coffee's great. But there's no judgment here. No. I'm just like, there's, there's, be, there's better things for you. If you want caffeine, there's better ways to get it. There's, All right. You know, Not that this is an ad for Pepsi Max, by the way, because I'm actually. But it is an ad for coffee. And if you have Osh's any. coffee. I'm happy. I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, Briggs, who was had a on this show, Briggs and I had an idea about coffee. But we're trying to make that happen. I could talk to you for a very, very long time, though you are a very busy person and I, I have kept you long enough, but I can't thank you enough for coming and doing oh, this today. Thank it's you. been I'm so grateful that you were into it. And um this has been the best. Into um, it, yeah. But are you going to give me any spoilers before I leave about um, the question that every Australian is asking as to who these masked singers are? He's not. I can give you an advantage that most people, and this is nothing I haven't said publicly. When will this go to air? Is it after uh, it? I can't tell you. <laughs> Say you're looking at me right now. Okay, just we're sitting in the Batuta Advocate <laughs> podcasting booth, which is great. And so behind me... There's so you can see my my bag that I walked in with is behind me. Yes. Okay. So say in the clue package, there's me and I'm the hippo. There's no hippo. He's already lost me. Yeah. All right. Say I'm the you know I'm the hippo and I'm dancing and I'm going. Right. I was once. Da, 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 da. I'm, I'm saying something. Yeah. And in the back of the shot, you can see that shoulder bag. Yes. Nothing in the back of the shot is an accident. Right. So if there's like a Scrabble board behind someone or okay. nothing in the frame. But is everyone onto that already? On the Twitterverse? No. They're not? No. There's so many things. Like if you freeze-framed right. any of it, you'd be like, oh, shit, of course. Like, uh, go back and have a look after last okay. night, you, you know, whoever got out last night, go back and look at the clues online and go through the f- package and you'll see the level of detail and the giveaways are there. Okay. The Nikki Webster one was, it was so obvious from the moment, but people didn't get it. Now, what I think people love about that program, though, is the conversation online that's happening and that it is like you're all sitting guessing and, you know, we're all in the town hall actually just watching a talent competition and guessing who everyone is. Do you watch it alone? No. Who do you watch it with? No, you don't watch it. Oh, no, that's fine. Well, I've been paying attention. So do you want to know the real honest truth? My husband loves The Block, so we're watching The Block, but I'm following Twitter. Man. And so I watch Masked Singer on TV. You're literally watching Paint Dry. I know. You are literally. At least on my other favourite show, which is Grand Designs, the paint is dry. By the time Kevin MacLeod or Peter (laughs) arrives, the paint is dry. On the block, they literally sit there and go, I know. I feel so bad now telling you that I'm not watching The Masked Singer, but I'm following on Twitter. So what I can see is that my Twitter feed, I can't look at anything else because it's masking and masking and masking because every other Australian is watching Because it's super fun. Now that you've told me about the clues, though, I am going to go back and watch last night. You should. And I'm going to see if and, I can But then guess. go back and look at the clues as to who got out. All right. And the rhythm and pattern of how the clues are given are the same for everybody. So there's a, there's, there are All right. massive giveaways. But people, you heard it here first. Sorry, you haven't heard. I, I said this you already. You said nothing. Okay. You're saying nothing about nothing. All right, nothing. maybe I can lie. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
All right, that was Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. You can find her on Twitter. You can find her on Instagram, Kirsten Ferguson, all one word, K-I-R-S-T-I-N, Ferguson. Big thanks to my audio producer, Andy Marr, for making the show with me today. Rachel Barrett, my show producer, who, along with my manager, Lauren, helped out a lot with Wolfgang this week. That was great. Uh, Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, who made the music today. And a massive thanks to Clancy, Shannon, Anthony, and the whole team at Batuta Advocate for helping out with the studio space. Thank you so much for listening tonight. If you want something to watch on the telly, uh, it's Australia. Tonight's the grand finale of The Masked Singer, that very silly show uh, that we've been making for the last little while. It's been doing quite well. We're very happy about it. Um, I hope you have fun watching it, but it's tonight is the grand finale. You finally get to see who everybody is. Everything's a guess until the head comes off. Cool. Right. I'm going to go have a nap and not tell my wife how much my bones hurt. No, no, I'm fine. Just going to have a little lie down. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say, because she's had about 48 minutes of sleep. I'll see you on Wednesday for Dad Pod, the premiere, and I'll see you on Friday for more of this. Uh, until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.